Gal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the September 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm excited as always to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Professor Leonard, happy back to school and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you again, Shane. Well, let's jump right in. This month, we have some really big circuit decisions circling back to some of the topics we've previously spoken about, but still of evergreen importance. Will you take us to what's going on in Georgia? Yeah, Georgia and Alabama. And in fact, what's going on in the 11th Circuit and the three states of the 11th Circuit, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. As of the 20th of August, we had preliminary injunctions in effect in all three states blocking the implementation to some extent of state laws banning gender affirming care for minors. And that is as of August 20th, because on August 20th, uh, Judge Sarah Garadi of the US District Court for the Northern District of Georgia had issued a preliminary injunction blocking SB 140 which is Georgia's ban on gender affirming treatment for minors from being enforced with respect to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. She had found that the ban on performance of gender affirming surgery need not be addressed because the record before her showed that it wasn't being performed on minors. (laughs) That that, uh, the state's outlawing its performance on minors was purely symbolic because no surgeon in uh, Georgia was performing gender-affirming surgery on minors. So uh, she issued the injunction on the 20th of August. The next day, the 11th Circuit ruled on an appeal by the state from a preliminary injunction issued in the state of Alabama. In the case of Eknis Tucker versus Governor, state of Alabama. In that case, the preliminary injunction was uh, was issued based on the finding of the district court that the statute failed to survive heightened scrutiny under the 14th Amendment. Uh, as is typical in these cases, the uh, 14th Amendment issues that were raised at the state level were due process, that is the right of the parents with respect to uh, medical decisions for their child and equal protection, claiming that the transgender minors who had been diagnosed with gender dysphoria were suffering discrimination because they were being deprived of of medical care that was available to cisgender individuals. And uh, if if you come back and you say, well, cisgender individuals don't need gender affirming care. Well, actually the same cross-sex hormones, or rather the same puberty, well, actually same-sex hormones that are used for gender-affirming care are also used in cases of premature or delayed puberty. 
to treat cisgender people uh, who have uh, reached the age when you would expect puberty to start, but it doesn't. So uh, the uh, hormone treatments are used to stimulate the body to commence puberty, or in some cases, puberty suddenly occurs prematurely before the child has reached an age typical of puberty. And so puberty blockers are used in that case uh, to delay the onset of puberty. And uh, therefore you have an equal protection issue because the same treatment is being provided to certain people and not others. And the distinction is based on their gender identity or so says the uh, district court in these cases. And actually in the cases in all three of the uh, states of the 11th circuit, the courts had made equal protection findings. So the case goes to the 11th circuit, which issued its decision on August 21st. Uh, this was a panel made up entirely of judges appointed by Donald Trump. <laughs> Two circuit court judges and a district court judge sitting by designation. But the interesting thing about the uh, Alabama case is that the district judge who issued the preliminary injunction was also appointed by President Trump. So it was a clean sweep of Trump appointed judges who were taking now opposing positions on these 14th Amendment issues. Judge Garatti, by contrast, in, uh, in Georgia was appointed by President Biden. And this was one of her earliest major decisions to issue this preliminary injunction. And we also have a preliminary injunction that was issued in Florida by, I believe, a judge who was appointed by uh, President Bush. But in any event, the 11th Circuit upset the apple cart here. Uh, the 11th Circuit decided that heightened scrutiny is not the appropriate test to use in a 14th Amendment challenge to uh, bans on gender-affirming care, either on the due process argument or the equal protection argument. And here, one of the precedents that comes into play is the Dobbs decision in which the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade. In the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court said, in terms of substantive due process, Substantive due process protects rights that were specifically spelled out in the Constitution and uh, particularly in the Bill of Rights or that were widely recognized at the time when the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. So Judge Lagoa of the 11th Circuit, who wrote the opinion for the panel, pointed out that hormone treatments, puberty blockers, these sorts of things were absolutely unknown in 1868. So as far as she was concerned, some claim that there's a constitutional right on the part of parents to provide these treatments to their transgender children. And although we can certainly assume that there were transgender people back then, we cannot assume that they were going to doctors for gender transition because the treatments and both the surgical treatments and the medical treatments for gender transition are 20th century developments. So Judge Lagoa says, therefore, it's a rational basis case. And we look to the legislative findings and the legislative findings provide a rational basis for the state to outlaw the provision of gender affirming care to minors. And the burden, of course, in a rational basis case is on the plaintiffs, not on the defendants to prove uh, that there is a substantial state interest or a compelling state interest. The issue is for the challenger of the statute. 
which is very, very difficult to meet in a rational basis case. There are rare cases in rational basis where court finds that uh, it hasn't been met, one of them being uh, Romer versus Evans, a famous case from 1996 where the court struck down a Colorado constitutional amendment that uh, prohibited banning discrimination against gay people. And the court said, well, there's no rational reason for doing that. It was all about animus against gay people. But in this case, the, uh, the court says under the due process clause, uh, it's not a heightened scrutiny case. What about the uh, equal protection arguments? And the court says, well, we don't see an equal protection argument here at all because we don't see that a suspect class or a quasi-suspect class is involved, even if we were to concede that there is discrimination here on the basis of gender identity, which we don't. They agreed with the state's argument that what we had here was the denial of a specific medical treatment to people, whether they were male or female, and therefore there's no sex discrimination, said the court. And we don't think that the 11th Circuit has ever specifically ruled on the merits under the Equal Protection Clause that there is heightened scrutiny for discrimination based on gender identity. Uh, they managed to their satisfaction to distinguish prior cases because the 11th Circuit has actually been seen as a circuit that was more open to gender identity equal protection claims including a, a very early uh, case in the history of litigation about this involving a transgender employee of the state of Georgia who was transitioning on the job and uh, whose boss fired her basically for transitioning. And uh, the court uh, said that she had a cause of action under the Equal Protection Clause. So it's sort of strange what's happening in the 11th Circuit. And, and what's happening is partly because it's a circuit that's now dominated by recent Trump appointees. That's true of both the 11th and the 5th Circuits. So they decided that there is no equal protection cause of action here. And if there was, if there was, it would be at best a rational basis case. And once again, they say that the state has a rational basis for denying these treatments. And uh, the state, in both in the legislative history and also in its arguments to the court, is making a big fuss about uh, side effects of gender-affirming hormone treatment and the risks, medical risks, of gender-affirming hormone treatment and of puberty blockers without focusing at all on the evidence that was presented to the court, uh, to the district court, of the benefits of gender-affirming care in terms of the mental health of the individual. And uh, parents and transgender minors who testified in these cases made it clear that this medication was life-saving for them. But the court, the, the 11th Circuit doesn't pay any attention to that. They focus on the risks and they say the state could rationally act based on the testimony about the risks. Now, when you look at the district court decisions, they tend to find that the expert testimony provided by the state is of dubious credibility. And the amicus briefs on file from all the major medical professional associations that have anything to do with gender-affirming care uh, make clear that there is close to a consensus 
among uh, people in those professions that this is appropriate care. Sometimes even the expert witnesses for the state will say in certain cases it's appropriate. And that, of course, undermines the state's argument that it has to be banned across the board. This, the states, and this is one of the reasons that they flunked heightened scrutiny, is that uh, the legislation is not adequately nuanced to deal with the facts on the ground. That some people need the treatment, some people don't need the treatment. Not every transgender person goes through hormone therapy. It depends on the uh, gender dysphoria, what its impact is on them, how severe it is, because it seems gender dysphoria is a condition that occurs on a scale. And for some people, uh, it requires early medical intervention, and for some people, it doesn't. This, and, and on the issue of surgery, which it ends up is not really such a significant issue when you're talking about treatment of minors, because even the professional standards, you know, putting statutes and regulations to one side, the professional standards of the, these professions say that you shouldn't do surgery except in very, very rare extreme cases on minors. So it's generally not performed. So we have the situation in the 11th Circuit. We have the three-judge panel decision, which vacated the preliminary injunction that had been issued in Alabama by the district judge there. So then the state of Georgia, of course, immediately petitions Judge Garatti, who issued her preliminary injunction the day before. So they say, hey, shouldn't you be reconsidering this because the 11th Circuit has now issued a decision that says that the appropriate standard for evaluating these is rational basis, not heightened scrutiny. And you used heightened scrutiny. You used the wrong test. So if your uh, decision is appealed, which we would expect to do to the 11th Circuit, you would be reversed. So shouldn't your determination that the plaintiffs had shown a good likelihood of success, which is a prerequisite to getting a preliminary injunction here, doesn't that have to be reconsidered? So Judge Garatti asked the parties to brief, and uh, she uh, received briefs from both sides. And she said, well, here's the story. The plaintiffs in the Alabama case have already announced that they are planning to file a motion for on-bank rehearing. And while her, that petition for on-bank rehearing is pending, the 11th Circuit will not send its mandate in the case back to the state of Alabama. And furthermore, if on-bank rehearing is granted, then the panel decision is effectively vacated. So she said, I am not going to dive back into this case and make a new analysis based on rational basis review unless I have to. So I'm going to suspend my preliminary injunction, but I'm not going to vacate it or withdraw it. It's there. If the 11th Circuit grants on-bank review, it will remain in effect. The preliminary injunction uh, in, uh, in Georgia will remain in effect. And so should the preliminary injunction in Alabama, because the 11th Circuit's mandate will not have come down. And if the 11th Circuit grants on-bank review, it could be months before it issues an on-bank decision, because granting on-bank review means vacating the three-judge panel decision, calling for new briefing from the parties, 
scheduling a new hearing before the full 12-judge 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and then the production of an on-bank decision. It could take a few months. And furthermore, depending how we rule, there might be a cert petition filed from our on-bank decision because there is now a circuit split on the issue of the constitutionality of across the board bans of gender affirming care for minors. We've got a decision by the Eighth Circuit in a case from Arkansas that upheld the preliminary injunction. We've got a case from the Sixth Circuit, the Scrimetti case, which from Tennessee, which overturned a preliminary injunction. And we've got these district court decisions all over the country. It seems likely that if a cert petition gets to the Supreme Court, it could be granted. And if the Supreme Court's going to grant a cert petition, then it may stay the, uh, or it may decide not to stay the preliminary injunction. Since the preliminary injunction in all of these cases is really a status quo injunction, it's because in all of these cases, in all of the three states, and we, one assumes that there will be developments in Florida as well, in all three states, there were minors who were receiving gender-affirming care before these laws were passed. And in all three states, there are preliminary injunctions issued at some point. And one of the reasons for the preliminary injunctions was that those who are receiving treatment should be allowed to continue receiving treatment until such time as there is a final ruling on the merits on whether the state law is constitutional. Interesting developments in the 11th Circuit, a rather complicated situation, moving parts in three states. And uh, we'll just have to see how this turns out. It's, uh, and at this point, I have not seen lots of speculation about how the Supreme Court would rule on these questions. Clearly, in the wake of Dobbs, we now have a majority of the Supreme Court that is historically focused on identifying which rights are protected under substantive due process. And there are significant issues about the scope of parental rights under the substantive due process clause. In fact, the issue is being litigated uh, in many parts of the country in which parents are filing suits challenging transgender policies adopted by school boards on both sides of the issue. Sometimes they're challenging anti-trans policies and sometimes they're challenging pro-trans policies. And one of the issues in the 14th Amendment, part of their lawsuits is what is the standard of review? Do parents have a substantive due process right to challenge internal school board policies regarding transgender students? And Title IX throws a complication into that because we have a statute as to which there is a disagreement across the country about whether it applies to gender identity discrimination. And of course, as you've heard from my discussion of the 11th Circuit's uh, decision in the Alabama case, there is dispute as to whether these bans on, on gender affirming care even constitute discrimination on the basis of sex, of sex or gender identity. So lots of questions floating around in the air here, lots of moving parts, stay tuned. A rather complicated procedural history. So I greatly appreciate the clarity that you've brought to the conversation to take us through 
everything no, that's unless i just muddied the waters more <laughs> we'll see what our listeners think well, those questions are certainly going to continue to muddy the waters, and I suspect will be fodder for upcoming podcasts for many months to come. Taking us across the country to another circuit, the Ninth Circuit, we've spoken a little bit about a variety of sports issues in that particular circuit, and I understand that you have a case for us with this month's issue pertaining to Idaho. Yes, Idaho was the first state to pass a law banning transgender girls and women from competing in women's sports from public school up through uh, colleges and college, uh, any, anything uh, having to do with uh, educational institutions and sports. Across the board, no transgender women can compete as women. This was blocked by a uh, preliminary injunction relatively quickly by Chief Judge Nye of the uh, District Court in Idaho, finding equal protection violation here. And uh, the state appealed the preliminary injunction, and it took an awful long time for the Ninth Circuit to decide. The uh, preliminary injunction was uh, issued over a year ago. And uh, now on... Uh, August 17th, the Ninth Circuit affirms it. The plaintiff in the case, Lindsay Hecox, is a transgender woman who was enrolled at Boise State University. She claims that the law violated Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 and the Equal Protection Clause. Judge Nye based the preliminary injunction ruling solely on the Equal Protection Claim partly because there is a, a lack of really strong binding precedent that Title IX would apply to this. There are, there are a lot of people who argue based on the reasoning of the Bostock case that Title IX, which bans sex discrimination by educational institutions to get federal money, should be considered to be gender identity discrimination or gender nonconformity discrimination should be considered sex discrimination under the reasoning of the Bostock case. There are other courts that reject that, who say that Bostock was an interpretation of Title VII, uh, that Title VII is an employment discrimination statute with particular wording, that the wording was relevant to the way the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Gorsuch's decision in Bostock was written, and therefore it's not transferable to Title IX. The, uh, in fact, that argument was made by Judge Lagoya in the uh, decision in the Alabama gender-affirming care case as well. But she was making it in terms of equal protection, that Bostock is not a precedent for equal protection either, which many courts uh, say it is. So, you know, we, we have so many decisions that, uh, issues that were left open by the Supreme Court in the Bostock case, uh, especially uh, there was this one paragraph that Justice Gorsuch included saying, this is what we're not ruling on. We're not ruling on bathrooms. We're not ruling on locker rooms. We're not ruling on any other statute. We're just ruling on whether a gender identity discrimination claim for a discharge is actionable under Title VII as a form of sex discrimination. That's all we're doing. And, and so uh, those who wanna give a very narrow reading to the Bostock case focus on that language. Those who want to give a broad reading to the Bostock decision focus earlier in the decision 
where he says it's impossible to discriminate based on gender identity without discriminating based on sex, which sounds like it should be applicable broadly to equal protection claims and statutory claims that involve statutes banning discrimination because of sex yet to be resolved by the Supreme Court. So uh, in this case, the panel opinion rests solidly on Judge Nye's equal protection analysis, not addressing the Title IX issue at all because they didn't have to get into it. We have very strong protection for transgender people under the Equal Protection Clause in the Ninth Circuit, dating back to uh, the litigation about the transgender military ban proclaimed by President Trump in a tweet in the summer of 2017. It was clear that that was going to be held unconstitutional in the Ninth Circuit. And uh, then, of course, uh, as soon as the Trump administration ended, the Biden administration came in, the ban was lifted. So uh, all those pending cases were mooted, but we have published opinions saying uh, heightened scrutiny under uh, under the Equal Protection Clause and that the ban couldn't survive heightened scrutiny. Well, in this case, the issue is, did the legislature in its findings, its factual findings uh, in, in the statutory ban or in uh, the advocacy of people who... Uh, who voiced opinions on this in the legislature, it was, uh, it was very clear that most of the arguments they made would have to be rejected under a heightened scrutiny analysis. Uh, the court pointed out that in fact, when this law was passed, there was nobody, no transgender individual in the state of Idaho as of then had asked to be able to compete on a women's team at any level from elementary school up through, uh, up through college. No one had asked. So you could say that this was a statute in search of a reason for being, that there was no issue yet in that state. And what sparked it? Why did Idaho, why was Idaho the first to step forward? Well, there was this media ferment frenzy about a case from Connecticut involving two women at, I believe, the college level who were competing in track and field. It was either college or high school uh, in women's sports, and the state was letting them do it. And a lawsuit was filed by a bunch of cisgender athletes who claimed that they were being subjected to unfair competition. And ultimately, by the time that case got to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit found the plaintiffs didn't have standing. Uh, so the case was dismissed. But meanwhile, it had become a subject of media frenzy. And if you look at the uh, news reports about debates in state legislatures about this issue, they all mention the Connecticut case as an example of what they're concerned about, that these women claim that if uh, transgender women had not been competing, they would have either won or finished higher in rank, and that this was crucial to their college applications for athletic scholarships and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, so... Uh, the, the court notes here that uh, at the time, it was totally hypothetical in Idaho. And the issue for the Court of Appeals was whether the judge had abused his discretion by granting the preliminary injunction based on his conclusion that the plaintiff was likely to be successful in an equal protection challenge. And Judge Wardlaw for the Ninth Circuit reviewing Judge Nye's decision 
uh, concluded that many of the factual premises that the legislature embraced were faulty and that a categorical ban on transgender participation misses the nuances of the facts available both then and now concerning the interests the legislature stated in the statute. So uh, first thing they stated was, we are protecting cisgender women from being displaced by transgender women and being denied the opportunity for competition. Uh, the court said that displacement fears were unwarranted as a matter of simple arithmetic, actually, because they looked at the numbers. How many transgender women are there as a percentage of the population? And how many of those are interested in competing in scholastic sports as women? In any given state right now, even states with large populations, we're talking about a handful of people at best, that does not constitute displacement on any scale that presents a significant problem, especially in the track and field area. Uh, they said it was highly unlikely that transgender women would be displacing a substantial number of cisgender women. Then the legislature asserted concern for fair competition. And the court said, well, let's look at the expert testimony that's uh, advanced here. If someone is diagnosed with gender dysphoria very early before puberty sets in and they receive puberty blockers and then they receive cross gender hormones uh, when uh, the doctor, their, their uh, professional uh, treatment provider concludes that it's an appropriate time for them, they're not going to have the advantages that a man would have in terms of a man who had gone through puberty. Uh, if, if you look at the data, look at the information, transgender girls tend to start puberty a little earlier than transgender boys. But by the time they, you know, at the first signs of puberty, and they usually wait for times, they, they don't base it on the average age. Uh, they wait to see if someone has the early signs of puberty, then you start with the puberty blockers. And if you start, because puberty is a process that extends over several years, you start early and someone who was identified male at birth, who starts on puberty blockers uh, the age of nine or 10, they're not gonna develop the muscle mass and the extra height and the extra reach that men have that give them advantage over women in competitive sports. That depends on the sport. I was amazed to read that, that there's a chess federation now that doesn't want transgender women to compete as women. I don't think that's a sport where puberty makes a big difference. But what do I know? I'm not an expert on that issue. But on this issue, there is plenty of credible evidence before the court that some transgender women perhaps would pose a fairness problem if they transition after male puberty. But that's something that you would have to look at on a case-by-case -case basis. That's why Renee Richards, for example, who won the first discrimination case by a transgender woman who wanted to compete as a woman back in the 1970s, she looks back now and she says, you know, I shouldn't have won that case because I had been through puberty. I transitioned as an adult. And yes, it's true. I was much taller than the average woman. And I had a longer reach than the average woman. And even though I was taking feminizing hormones, I probably had more strength than the average woman. 
So maybe it was unfair for me to compete as a woman at Forest Hills. Maybe the court got it wrong, but um, in retrospect, but today we're talking about people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria as children and who receive puberty blockers in many cases. So, you know, the issue will be different for different people, which means, says the court, the state's reasoning here doesn't withstand the careful analysis required with heightened scrutiny, that they have to show that there is a really good justification here. And uh, one of the things the state argues, well, there were a few countries in Europe now where they have placed new restrictions on competition by women, or rather restrictions on the use of uh, these uh, puberty blockers and things like that. And the court says, well, you know, they don't ban them. And then on this, on the issue of sports competition, people come in and say, well, look, all these international federations that govern uh, international competition in sports have now started placing restrictions on transgender women. But the answer is most of them have placed restrictions depending on the individual case rather than across the, the board bans. That uh, if you have early transition, if you don't have male puberty, then you have women who should be able to compete, transgender women. Doesn't do, they don't present the same competitive issue. Uh, the state also argued in this case that it did not involve discrimination because of gender identity because the statute didn't use the terms transgender or gender identity. What the statute did is it defined male and female and said that only people defined as female could play female sports. And they adopted a definition of female, which meant people identified at birth as female based on their genitals or potential reproductive capacity or things of that sort. The court said, well, we think that that's discrimination based on gender identity. We think that the concept of biological sex, which is used in many of these statutes as a determinant of whether an individual is a man or a woman is a proxy for anti-transgender discrimination. And they bolstered this with quotes from the legislative history of supporters of the bill, since it was clear, especially by their references to the Connecticut case, it was clear that what they were doing was trying to keep transgender women from competing in women's sports. So that was the intention of the legislature, regardless of the apparent neutrality of the language. And finally, the court reserved its special ire for a provision authorizing anyone who believed that someone who was competing as a woman was actually transgender had a right to challenge them to prove that they were a biological woman. Now, there was no similar authorization for people to challenge transgender men because no one's concerned about transgender men competing in men's sports. Why? Well, transgender men are people who were identified as women at birth and who uh, maybe took puberty blockers uh, at the onset of the first signs of puberty to uh, prevent developing secondary sex characteristics of a woman and then would take cross-gender hormones, primarily testosterone or similar uh, hormones, to masculinize their body. And then it competed as men. 
there's no argument by anybody that they receive some kind of special advantage. I mean, the, the argument is they might have too much testosterone. But uh, no one has really shown it. And there aren't a lot of transgender men who are competing as men. So the legislature didn't uh, address that. You can't challenge a man as not being a man. The statute says that only people identified as male at birth can compete as men, but it doesn't do this challenge. The court concluded that even though this case was litigated as an as-applied challenge to the statute from the perspective of Lindsay Hecox, the Judge Nye's decision to issue an across-the-board preliminary injunction against enforcement of the statute, not just to protect Lindsay Hecox, was uh, not an abuse of discretion either. They said that this really, it turns out, is uh, attacking the statute on its face, not just as applied to, to Lindsay Hecox. And uh, the state had also tried to argue that the case was moot because when the preliminary injunction was issued, she tried out for the track team and didn't make it and withdrew from school. So they said the case is moot. And uh, what she's looking at basically is injunctive relief. The court said, no, it's not moot because she indicated she had withdrawn for various family reasons and things. And she was planning to re-enroll at some time in the future, at which time she would want to try out the team. So that was enough to say that it wasn't moot. So the Ninth Circuit has upheld the, upheld the preliminary injunction in this case. And I believe this is one of the first courts of appeals to address this issue on the merits. The Second Circuit in the Connecticut case dismissed based on standing of the cisgender athletes who the court said they all were allowed to compete, the cisgender athletes, they were not displaced from competing. Some of them even beat transgender women in their categories in some of the races that they were involved in. So they said, we don't think that they've suffered an injury. And furthermore, they claimed that they had to uh, do better in order to get their athletic scholarships and go to college. But guess what? All these plaintiffs, by the time the case got to the second cert, they were all in college <laughs> and they had their athletic scholarships. So uh, no standing because they had no injury. So that's where we stand on the Ninth Circuit now, uh, which is a pretty big deal because the Ninth Circuit covers about uh, what is it, a third of the nation's population. When you put all the Pacific Coast uh, states together and some of the mountain states are in the Ninth Circuit like Idaho and then we have Hawaii and Alaska. So it's a big chunk of the country that's governed by this one. Uh, I haven't heard anything about the state seeking on bank review. They might. And it's a real crapshoot in the Ninth Circuit because you don't get the whole circuit on, on on bank review. You get a panel of 11 judges, which include the circuit judges on the three judge panel, the chief judge and others by sort of random assignment. And uh, there are close to 30 judges, active judges in the Ninth Circuit. 27, something like that. So you draw an 11 judge panel, who knows what you get. So it's the, it's, the Ninth Circuit is literally the Wild West when it comes to hot bank review. So uh, we'll see what happens. There have been cries for years to break up the Ninth Circuit and make it a more manageable circuit. So who knows, but I don't think there's any consensus in Congress to do that at this point. So that's where we stand on that issue.
Well, thank you for taking us through that with our friends in the PAC-12 district, what's going on there. As you had mentioned, this is really legislation and kind of looking for a problem and the facts just don't really add up. Keeping in the similar vein, school sports and it's back to school season. I believe you have some cases for us talking about other aspects of kiddos undergoing elements of social transition in school, not just playing sports, but perhaps what means they're using the classroom and pronouns and gender expression. A panel in the Fourth Circuit held on August 22nd that a group of parents who sued to uh, oppose the Montgomery County, Maryland Board of Education's guidelines for gender identity did not have standing. Uh, and uh, this is an interesting case because, you know, way back at, toward the end of the Obama administration, the uh, Department of Education sent a dear colleague letter out to all of the public school districts in the nation with guidelines for transgender students, because even before the Bostock case, the Obama administration had concluded, based on some court of appeals decisions around the country, that uh, gender identity discrimination was a form of sex discrimination. They were following the lead of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who had issued a, a ruling to that effect in a case, uh, a public sector case, where they had uh, appellate jurisdiction. So. Many school districts in response to these guidelines had adopted policies. Then the Trump administration withdrew the guidelines. Then the Biden administration reinstated them and reinforced them in various ways and now had the Bostock decision to lean on. Uh, so uh, the Montgomery County Board of Education adopted this policy. This includes instructing school staff to use a student's preferred gender pronouns and preferred name to ensure that the student can participate in extracurricular activities consistent with their gender identity and ensuring that the student has safe spaces. They did not, in this version of the guidelines, address sports. They said that will be addressed separately because we're still studying how to deal with sports participation. This was uh, from the Biden administration. And so this policy doesn't address sports either. But basically extracurricular activities consistent with their gender identity. You might stress that to say that it would involve sports as well, at least in the lower grades. Uh, three parents of children attending the Montgomery County Public Schools brought this lawsuit to challenge the policy. And the specific thing they were concerned with was a provision called the parental preclusion policy, which instructs school officials to protect student privacy and safety by only disclosing gender support plans to parents with the student's permission, and only if the parent is likely to be supportive. And the parent said, this means that if my child goes to a school counselor and says that he or she has a gender identity issue and is seeking counseling and stuff like that, and the, uh, the counselor uh, devises a gender identity plan for that student, they don't have to tell us. They don't have to tell us the parents unless they get permission from the student. And some students who are uncertain how their parents might react to this might want to go to a counselor at school first. 
And what would happen if those parents were notified, sort of out of the blue, because this is a case where the student did not notify the parents and maybe was not dressing or grooming uh, as it, 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 consistent with the uh, gender identity feelings that they were having, because this was in an early stage. You know, they're having these feelings, but they haven't acted on it yet. And they've gone to a school counselor or a teacher, a trusted teacher or an administrator. And so they filed suit because they said, under the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause, the Supreme Court has said that parents have a fundamental right regarding the upbringing of their children and their education. And we think that our fundamental rights are violated by the adoption of this policy. The district court dismissed the case for failure to state a claim. The three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals vacated the district court's opinion, but also dismissed the case, holding that the parents didn't have standing under Article 3 to challenge the policy. And you might ask, what's the basis of that? Well, they said, everything that they're alleging here is totally speculative with respect to them and their children totally hypothetical, totally speculative. They haven't alleged that they have suffered any injury as a result of this policy, or that the application of this policy presents any imminent problem because they aren't alleging that their children are transgender, or that even if they were, that they would decide to go to a school counselor to talk about it rather than to their parents. So no standing. And so the the opinion is all about standing here. They said the parents' fare was speculative at most, while the parents allege that the school created transition plans for other parents, for, for other students rather. They did not claim that their own children were transgender or gender nonconforming. They didn't allege that the school had created a transition plan on behalf of their children. They said for the parents to be injured in fact, which is required for standing, several events would have to occur, including one, their children identifying as transgender or gender nonconforming, two, their children disclosing this to the school, three, for the child to refuse to have the school notify their parents. And in this instance, they said there was no allegation that their children ever spoke with school officials about their gender uh, or had considered, considered transitioning. Uh, they said, it's all hypothetical. And the parents argued, but then how would we know because the parental preclusion policy? Well, this, if this case were to actually survive the motion to dismiss by the school district, you'd get discovery and then you might find out. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't survive the motion to dismiss. Now, there was a dissent. It was a two-to-one decision. The dissenter, one of the conservative judges on uh, Judge uh, Niemeyer, one of the conservative judges on the circuit, said uh, he thought that there were prior cases in which the Supreme Court recognized standing and where you could draw analogies to this case. And might even go further and say that the Supreme Court, especially in religious cases, has really loosened the standing requirements in recent years. And some people have looked at the 303 creative case, which we've spoken about quite a bit, and said, what happened to standing there? I mean, this was someone who had never made a wedding website for anybody. 
And it said, well, I'm thinking about getting into that business. And I'm afraid if I do, I may have to violate my religious convictions by making a wedding website for a same-sex couple. Well, that's pretty speculative. It means getting into the business, being, uh, having a same-sex couple apply to them to make a wedding website, and uh, that the state would come in and enforce its non-discrimination law against them would depend on the state agency deciding that it's not going to honor religious arguments that the person should have an exemption. So they didn't see an imminent injury there, most people, and uh, the, uh, the trial court didn't see an imminent injury there. It was uh, the Tenth Circuit in that case who said that they had standing, and then the Supreme Court just adopted that without any real close analysis. They just said, you know, we go with the Tenth Circuit on this. So standing has been rather loosened. Uh, but in this case, the Fourth Circuit says no standing. It'll be interesting to see. Once again, this is, you know, just a few weeks ago, whether they try to take it further, maybe on bank, especially since they have a dissenting judge in the case. There were loads of amicus briefs in this case, including Alliance Defending Freedom. But on the, uh, that's on the side of the parents, on the, on the side of the school board, like the ACLU, Lambda Legal, the Trevor Project, uh, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, uh, several state attorneys general, PFLAG, so the court got a lot of amicus argument as, and this focused very much on uh, the idea that the parents are seeking to compel the school to violate the confidentiality of the students if they were to come to the school to seek counseling, which uh, would create a deterrent to students if they know that the counselors are required to tell their parents. And these are students who need the help, need the counseling. So good decision out of the Fourth Circuit, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be easier to just affirm your child and create that environment at home than going through all the litigation process to find out through discovery, but yet here we are. So good to hear a high note for today's podcast. And, and I understand that you have an of note that's a bit of a victory as well. Yes, this is a settlement of litigation that was brought on behalf of a transgender person who uh, was incarcerated in the Broome County, New York jail. And uh, in the lawsuit alleged that during her time in the Broome County custody in 2021, the sheriff's office and its staff discriminated against Ms. Holland, her name, on the basis of her sex, her transgender status and a disability, beat her, subjected her to illegal strip searches, housed her with men and in isolation, and denied her access to prescribed medications, including antidepressants and hormone treatments, triggering severe withdrawal symptoms. Uh, and uh, this lawsuit was brought jointly by the New York Civil Liberties Union and the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Foundation. And the county agreed to, uh, according to a press release uh, about the settlement that was issued on August 24th, the county agreed to a wide sweeping policy that affirms the rights of transgender people with respect to housing placement, access to medical care, searches, and freedom from harassment and discrimination. Very important. And uh, this follows a previous settlement, similar settlement in Steuben County, New York. And uh, according to the press release, it has produced a model set of policies 
that had been followed voluntarily by several other New York counties. The, the recurring problem is that in many cases, county jails were just not set up with any thought to how to deal with transgender people who were incarcerated there. These are people who haven't been convicted. They're awaiting trial. They can't, they're not eligible for release, releasement on bond or something like that. Uh, and also, uh, I think uh, misdemeanor people are held in, in county jails. Uh, but uh, people who are convicted on felonies end up in the state prison system. And the state prison system in New York, while not perfect on transgender issues by any means, has been pretty good compared to many other states. And uh, many of the issues have been settled by earlier litigation. Uh, but uh, at, the, at the level of the counties, you know, it's still a wake-up call to the counties that you have to do something here to accommodate uh, transgender people who are incarcerated, sometimes very temporarily. Uh, I've seen cases involving people who have just held for a brief period of time until they were released by the trial court awaiting trial or the case was dismissed uh, or they pled to, to a charge of some sort. But uh, because of this, these institutions have generally not uh, taken the extra steps necessary uh, to deal with this. You know, the, the issue of medication, for example, generally uh, penal institutions do not allow people to bring in medication from outside. If you can't get it through their dispensary and if you can't get a prescription for it, you're out of luck. Uh, so transgender people who have been taking hormones will come in to a, a jail setting or a prison setting after a conviction. They'll come into that setting and they won't be allowed to bring their hormones or to continue getting hormones from an outside source uh, under a prescription that they already have. Uh, they have to go through the whole process of qualifying again through uh, the health care provided in the institution. And then there's the issue whether the institution provides the medication. And there are frequently delays of significance. Uh, this is an issue that we've covered extensively in the uh, what used to be called the prisoner litigation notes. We now call the incarcerated person litigation notes in law notes. We have a dozen or more cases each month on average. Uh, and several of them focus on medication, although the issue with medication has gotten pretty advanced. Uh, now the point is uh, people suing for gender transition and for the right to buy ancillary uh, uh, things, garments and things of that sort, so that they can live in their gender. And then, of course, the question of housing, of where you're going to house transgender prisoners. And when you're talking about a county jail, you might not have enough transgender prisoners to justify separate uh, accommodations, uh, or the it may be a too small of an institution to deal with that. Uh, so you know we're we're talking about uh, settlements that may result in significant expenditures and redesign of facilities, which would be all to the good if it happens. But this was an important settlement, and it's uh, it's part of a trend now in New York State among various counties uh, to embrace some of these new policies. It's it's important that there was litigation because sometimes that's the prompt that you need to get a local government to take action, since just defending a lawsuit can be expensive. Well, congrats to our friends at NICU and Tilda for this important victory. And for those who want to do a deeper dive into hearing Michaela's story, 
is in her own in her own words. We'll be sure to include the link to that video as well. Before we end, we should mention that uh, because of my travel schedule in October, we are going to combine the October and November issues of Law Notes, which means the podcast also will be a little later than usual, probably early in November. Uh, so, uh, well, I'm retired now from full-time teaching. So uh, occasionally I'm, I'm doing other things and uh, I, I am not in a position to write Law Notes while I'm on the road. Uh, so uh, we will uh, delay coverage of news of cases occurring during September and combine them with the cases occurring during October in a combined November newsletter and podcast. With that on the heads up, um, we will still be back with our non-law notes episodes, so be sure to be tuning into that as well. And for our attorney law student, judge, and legal professional listeners in the audience. We are closing out our formal bar membership renewal season. Please visit lgbt.org backslash membership hyphen plan to join. Law student membership is free and first year membership is discounted as low as $36 a year. Be a part of one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus bar associations in the country as we continue to celebrate our 45th or Sapphire anniversary. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.